If you would, go ahead and open your, your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11 this morning. And as you're turning there, there are two types of people in this text. And we see them both at the end in verses 10 and 11. There is the child of light who fears God and yet finds himself walking in darkness without light. These are the afflicted who need comfort. And then there's the child of darkness pretending to be in the light. These are the content who need a wake-up call. And I'm convinced that here this morning are both of those groups. Both of those groups are represented here this morning. There are those who are struggling, who are walking in darkness. You fear God, you love Christ, and yet you find yourself in trouble every day. You need Christ. And yet, there are those pretending to be in the light, faking it. You got the show. You got the external fixings. You got all the right words to say. You have all the right answers. But very well, you could be the one who says, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment. And I have a great fear for you. And so as any good street preacher, I want to comfort the insecure who needs security and terrify the content who falsely claims security. And this glorious passage that contains nothing but Christ will do the work of both. I only have one objective this morning, and that is that you would walk out of this building with a greater love for Jesus than when you walked in. If you, that does not happen, I have failed. And I want your heart to burn within you for Christ. And the Old Testament text I have chosen this morning will do the heavy lifting of that task. In it, we see the life of our Jesus, afflicted and trialed in every way we are, yet sinless. The New Testament shows Jesus as God and man living a perfect life and satisfying the penal demands of deity on behalf of sinners. And in the Gospels, we see our Lord resurrected from the dead, validated by over 500 eyewitnesses and testified by 2,000 years of Christ's power to save the lost and transforming them, making them new creations in Christ. But sometimes we see a clearer picture of Christ in the Old Testament than the New. Sometimes the Old Testament records something that the New Testament does not. And this morning, this is such a passage. After rising from the dead... You'll remember in Luke chapter 24, our Lord walking with some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, even though Jesus was standing right there in front of them, they still did not even know who he was. And Christ labors with them through the Old Testament to reveal his identity. And as Luke 24, 27 says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus took them through the Old Testament to reveal himself to them. Now, what a profound and heart-throbbing treat that would have been to sit in on. And at some point in this exposition about Jesus and by Jesus, the text tells us that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us? While he was speaking on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And again, I say, the only objective I have for you this morning is the same. My desire is for your heart to burn within you for Christ. And I want to do it the same way that Jesus did it. I want to take you to perhaps one of the passages that Jesus surely would have went to when preaching himself. And this is one of those rare passages where the light of the Old Testament spotlights an aspect of our Savior's life that the New Testament does not. And so let's read our text, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I did not rebel, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, 
and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. Even now, Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I am not dishonored. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a judgment against me? Let him approach me. Behold, Lord Yahweh helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who gird yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have for my hand. You will lie down in torment. What we have in this passage is a call to look with fresh eyes to our Savior as a means for worship. And this servant song of Isaiah is one of those insights where we see the life of our Lord in a light that is often overlooked. We rightly conclude the deity of Christ. We know and do well to affirm and proclaim that in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. That he is our great God and Savior, as Paul concludes in Titus 2.13. And we rightly understand the importance of this doctrine. Because without a Savior who is truly and fully God, we do not have a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We need the infinite God to take away the infinite punishment that our sins have earned for us. But friends, we also need a human representative to represent us as a better Adam who fulfilled the perfect obedience that God requires of us. And so we also see this perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, not only as God, but as a man, our human representative, who modeled obedience so that we may know also how to obey God in the darkest hours of our life. We are called to walk as Jesus walked. And in this passage, we see the glorious picture of our Lord's perfect obedience. God wants you to read this passage and draw strength to trust and obey him by adoring Christ. This is the application that God desires of you in this passage. Verse 4, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. Verse 10, let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. God wants to sustain you. He wants you to trust him. And he wants you to do it by marveling over Christ. Adore Christ, not just as a mere academic doctrine for you to affirm, but gaze upon your Savior who suffered and was vindicated for sinners like us. And so, brethren... Let us tremble over God's word as we view four portraits of Christ that are worthy of your worship and should drive you to walk as he walked. And if you're a note taker, an outliner, this is my outline. We're going to see that Christ learned worship and obey because Christ learned worship and obey because Christ suffered worship and obey because Christ was vindicated and worship and obey because Christ calls you to do so. And the first portrait I want you to see in Christ is that he learned obedience as a son. He learned obedience as a son. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And look here in our text in verse 4, Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple, a disciple. Come behold such a wondrous mystery. 
the one who sat upon the throne in Isaiah 6, who received worship from the seraphim singing, holy, 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 learns. In chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. And yet Jesus testifies in chapter 12, 41 of the Gospel of John, when Isaiah looked upon the throne, he saw Jesus. Could you imagine how perplexed Isaiah is at this point? How perplexed he would have been to see the one who sat on the throne, who caused the thresholds to tremble at his voice with smoke filling the temple and is now pictured here as a man who learns obedience. The idea of the word learned is that he was instructed by God. Isaiah looks 700 years into the future to see the one who was sitting on the throne now humbly learning as a disciple. And the text gives us the very purpose for why Jesus devoted himself to this discipleship to sustain the weary one with the word. Dear Christian, he learned so that he would sustain you. He humbled himself as a man to learn what you ought but cannot because of your sin. To learn obedience in the place of your disobedience. To sustain you while you were fallen. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though being rich yet for your sake became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8.9 The high and lifted up one has stooped down to learn obedience in the place of sinners. Though man is often tempted to give up when ignorance accompanies hardship, the Lord Jesus sought instruction morning by morning as a representative before God and example to follow. What a mystery that Jesus being God in every sense would take on human flesh to learn as a man. And in fact, it has perplexed Jews so much so that they have concluded that Israel must be the true servant of the servant songs. And being darkened in their understanding, they render themselves to be the savior and captain of their own souls. They make themselves the suffering servant who would later on take away their own sin. The true humanity of our Lord, though, is necessary in order for sinners to be saved. If Christ had not assumed every bit of what it means to be human, then we do not have a true human representative for our salvation. Nor would we have a trailblazer to show us the way of obedience. If Christ was not every bit human, but some sort of demigod, then we could rightly conclude that he cheated. How can we follow such a man in obedience who is not even truly a man? But our Jesus, brethren, learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And I want you to notice the continual sense of this learning, morning by morning. Jesus was awakened by his Father to learn. You want an example concerning how you can obey God? Incline your ear to God's word morning by morning as the disciple, as the servant of God did. Every morning he was in sweet communion with God and it says that he was given the tongue of disciples, meaning that which he learned, he spoke. His ear was opened in order that he may demonstrate the complete obedience that God demands of man. The standard of perfect and perpetual obedience imposed upon everyone. Matthew 5.48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And look at this perfect obedience in verse 5. Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I did not rebel, nor did I turn my back. The disciple, or servant of God, heeded every command from God, spoke every word that reached his ear, and on behalf of wretches like you and I, obeyed on our behalf, modeling how you should walk likewise in obedience. And don't miss this, but notice how the sovereignty of God is the comfort that Jesus has in his obedience. Look at verses 4 and 5. The text says, Lord Yahweh, or as the NASB translates it, the sovereign Lord. We see all the horror in the world, 
and tragedy and death and threats and our knee-jerk reaction in the flesh is to fear. Yet Jesus sees things as under the complete and total control of God. While we see chaos, Jesus sees life through the lens of sovereign decree. No matter what the servant would go through, he knew one thing for certain. And that is God can be trusted because he is sovereign over every detail of life. Not a hair on your head will be touched without God's approval. That is the lesson that Israel should have learned. And that is the lesson that we should glean from as well. God can be trusted because he is sovereign over all. Can't you see why Jesus would tarry with his father morning by morning to learn? Why go to the world to interpret the times when you can go to the almighty God who's sovereign over the times? God is sovereign in control of every detail of your life. And yet how insidious it is that we would murmur about our circumstances. Complaining about the weather. Complaining about traffic. Complaining about ruling authorities. Complaining about everything. When the fact remains, it is the way it is by sovereign decree. Therefore, turn your murmuring into praise. Give thanks to God for the heat. Praise Him that you even have a car to get stuck in traffic in. Quit complaining about governing authorities. Instead, pray for their salvation. Your prayer life is the thermostat to gauge how hot your belief is in the sovereignty of God. Don't tell me you love the homeless. Pray for the salvation of Joe Biden and are filled with compassion toward the atheist if you're not praying for their salvation daily. That's hypocrisy. You don't actually mean it. It's a show. You don't tell me you believe in the sovereignty of God and praise him for it when your whole life is just one big complaint against everything that he has decreed for a good purpose. Has not Romans 8:28 said that God causes all things? And does verse 29 not say that it's ultimately so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ? What is the reason to complain? Instead, put to death murmuring against God's control and do it by means of gazing upon your perfect Savior who morning after morning would enjoy communion with the Father and doing so to sustain you, to uphold you while you complain and to lift you up while sin has gripped your heart and desensitized you to obedience. And so, brethren, may your heart burn within you as you view our Savior's perfect obedience that is graciously accounted into your account, if indeed you're in Christ. Undeserving, hell-bound, wretched, and yet dearly beloved of God to send His Son to learn obedience for sinners like us. Worship and obey God because the servant learned obedience for sinners. One morning, our Lord Jesus was woken up by God as usual for communion. And during this time of communion, he received a hard word. God instructed him to suffer. And we know that because of the servant's response. Look at verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. How would you respond to God after hearing a hard word like this, that your sovereign Lord who loves you, cares for you, and has your best interest at heart has ordained for you to suffer. Man runs. Man hides. Man cowers from God in disobedience. Man would cry out for the mountains to fall and before he must deal with God. But Jesus, our Jesus, did not rebel nor turn his back. He submitted to Yahweh by giving his back to be struck and his beard to be plucked and his face to be shamed. Notice the determination of our Savior. He did not turn his back from God and in doing so, he exposes his back to his enemies. And don't mistake this for the crucifixion. That will be three chapters later. But here, Isaiah marvels over the obedience of Christ's life and the suffering he endured through it. 
Isaiah is seeing a snapshot of our life, the life of our Lord, pre-cross. Though darkness afflicted Jesus during his earthly ministry, he never faltered once. That's why he can sympathize with our weaknesses, who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet sinless. Though Satan pursued Christ to tempt him, his strong and perfect plea was the word of God that reached his ear morning by morning. The faith of our Savior is that Yahweh is sovereign, Yahweh is good to him, and Yahweh has ordained the best for me. And, the fa- and this faith is in the midst of knowing that Yahweh is the one who has ordained this affliction. And so with perfect obedience, the servant allows himself to be beaten, mocked, spat upon, and shamed. The plucking of a man's beard was something exceedingly shameful in that culture. It brought dishonor. Do you remember the story in 2 Samuel about David's men being dishonored? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? That was Hanan's counselors. And so Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments as far as the middle of their hips and sent them away. Then they told it to David and he sent to meet them. For the men were greatly dishonored, it says. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. As a footnote, beards and glory, they go together. Don't forget that. (laughs) But here in this account, having their beard shaved was equivalent to the dishonor of their garments being cut off to their hips. All of these wicked acts inflicted upon the servant in Isaiah's vision were contributing all to his public humiliation. That's the point. Consider how Scripture indicates these types of shame. Job 30 verse 10 says, They abhor me and keep a distance from me, and they do not hold back from spitting at my face. Because God has loosed his bowstring and afflicted me, they have thrust aside their bridle before me. Job's afflicted, dishonored, and yet God is sovereign over it. Jeremiah 7.29, Cut off your hair and cast it away and lift up a funeral lamentation on the bare heights. For Yahweh has rejected and abandoned the generation of his wrath. This is an affliction ordained by God, an abandonment. Here's the point. The servant takes upon himself the dishonor and shame and rejection from God that his people deserve. And he did this during the pilgrimage through life. This goes beyond mere embarrassment. Jesus The servant of God, the thrice holy God who sat upon the throne is now a man of learning and is put to shame. It would seem that the servant's faith is in vain, seemingly rejected by his God whom he learned from morning by morning. That's what the world would think. That's what the world sees in Jesus. They see nothing but foolishness. But to us, we behold salvation from God. Obey Christ, not simply because he fulfilled 613 laws that you couldn't, but obey Christ because he obeyed in the midst of intense affliction and public shame as a substitute for sinners like us. How would you respond to this level of shame? Don't let pride fill your heart. You wouldn't want anything to do with this. Tempted and trialed in every way we are, yet filled with sin. That's us. But our Jesus, being shamed, still concludes in verse 7, Even now, Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I am not dishonored. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. You see the determination. You see the right worldview. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, if someone willingly submitted to this level of shame, then it meant that he was admitting in some sense that he deserved the abuse that was being hurled at him. But this servant, after meekly submitting to the abuse, still proclaims his innocence and determination to obey Yahweh. The word help 
It has the general idea of support. And sometimes it's used by the pagans who believed that their deity would bring some sort of aid in their time of need. But for Israel, Yahweh as a help is so much more than simple support. It's salvific. Psalm 79 verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. For Yahweh to be a help is for him to be a deliverer of his people from spiritual and physical trouble. And one of the ways that Yahweh is a help to physical needs is by granting victory in the military conquest. Over and over again, we see that God helps Israel by conquering their enemies. And so Christ, the servant of God, despised, shamed, afflicted, under God's sovereign control that this is happening, says, God is my help in the middle of that. To better understand what it means when Jesus confesses, Yahweh helps me, consider the way Isaiah speaks of the help that comes from God. For Isaiah, when speaking about the nations, the enemies of God, he describes them as no help throughout the entire book. But when speaking about the help that comes from God, it's typically, it's typically accompanied by this phrase, do not fear. Look at chapter 41, verse 10. It says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Verse 13, for I am Yahweh, your God who strongly takes hold of your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Verse 14, do not fear, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares Yahweh. And the last time we see Isaiah using this word is in chapter 63, verse 5, where Yahweh is described as the only one who could save Israel. Now, it seemed that there's no one to aid Jesus through this intense suffering and shame. Yet in the midst of this God-ordained shame and affliction, Jesus says, even now, Lord Yahweh helps me. In the world's eye, they see Christ as a dishonorable, impotent man, rejected by God who deserved every bit of what he got. But verse 7 says, I am not dishonored. Our Lord's focus is not on the raging sea of affliction, but he sees his circumstance as the smooth, calm, and glassy sea ordained by God. Brethren, worship and trust God because of the servant's obedience in affliction. When it says, I have set my face like flint, he means to express his determination to obey and accomplish the mission that he learned from Yahweh. Everyone looking at this disfigured and shamed servant would think of him as a fool, but the servant presses on, so as the New Testament in Luke 9.51 says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the task. The Lord's mission was to fulfill all righteousness on behalf of sinners, on behalf of you, Christian. And your name was on his mind and heart as he endured the darkness of life. Now, don't tarry off in your mind. Don't check out. Listen, your Savior came to live for you. Don't, does not your heart melt within you looking upon Christ because he endured such shame and hostility on behalf of sinners? He didn't have to do this. No one coerced him. He willingly did this. He set his face to go to Jerusalem to shoulder whatever he needed in order for you to walk free. Matthew Henry said, Christ had trouble that we might have peace, pain that we might have pleasure, sorrow that we might have joy. He wore the crown of thorns that he might crown us with roses and a lasting joy might be upon our heads. The garden of Gethsemane was the place of his agony that it might be to us a garden of Eden. And while the text says he set his face to go to Jerusalem, that's when his disciples, even his disciples would want to call down fire from heaven because no one wanted to receive him. But Jesus rebukes them. 
you don't know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived for sinners, to save them, so that you too, by beholding him, may become like him and walk as he walked. Brethren, we too can suffer well as we fix our eyes on the man Jesus, who perfectly obeyed, despising the shame, not reviling in return, but entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And this trusting of himself was not in vain because he entrusted himself to the one who delights in perfect obedience and ultimately vindicated the servant. Worship and draw strength to obey because Christ learned obedience. Worship and draw strength to obey because Christ suffered intense affliction. And worship and draw strength to obey because Christ was vindicated. Look with me again at verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a judgment against me? Let him approach me. Behold, Lord Yahweh helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. The servant learned enough from Yahweh to know that he could be trusted while suffering. Ultimately, because Yahweh is the final judge, and it is his judgment that matters, no one else's. And part of the way in which Yahweh helps the servant is through his vindication. Let the world sling all the trash talk, weak threats, and violence they want. The worst that they can do is kill you. Do not fear those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Yahweh is the one who judges, and Jesus knows that God will testify of his innocence and vindicate his righteousness before the world. And so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Make no mistake. The servant's righteousness is the only acceptable obedience that God receives and counts as righteous. He is the one who is vindicated. And so to not bow the knee to Yahweh's vindicated servant is to reject God and align yourself as an enemy of God. Consider your standing right now. What merits should allow you into heaven? Is it your own? Repent if it is. It is only the merits of Christ. It is only his obedience that is vindicated. It is only his obedience that could propel you into heaven. So, dear sinner, outside of Christ, laboring and toiling by your own good deeds to earn favor with God, God calls for a ceasefire this day. Terms of peace are offered to you. You can go free. Not because of your righteousness, what Isaiah will later say is, but filthy rags. But you can go free because Jesus labored for sinners to fulfill all righteousness, perfectly obeying to sustain the weary one. Would you not lay down your efforts and take up the cross of Christ as your only hope for salvation, seeing what Christ has done for sinners? To vindicate, it means to justify or to make righteous. It has the sense of a legal term to describe uh, a judge rendering innocence upon an accused party. The servant goes through physical abuse and humiliation, but he is not disgraced or shamed. Why? Because God has vindicated the servant. There are none who can rightly bring a charge against Christ. Man has no right to deem guilty what God has rendered perfect and innocent. And so we see with the Lord's vindication, the tables are now turned. And the servant begins to taunt his oppressors. Who has a judgment against me? 
Let him approach me. Who is he who condemns me? They rendered a false judgment on the servant. And look at verse 9 for his judgment on them. Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. The servant possesses perfect trust in Yahweh as his help as a defense attorney. No prosecuting party stands a chance to hold a case. And anyone who would dare stand up to the servant will wear out like a moth-eaten garment. The picture is that their end is a slow, painful, and inevitable wasting away as their lives fade thinner and thinner toward death. Like an old coat that you would pull out a loose string and the whole thing unravels. That's the picture of those who stand against Christ. They won't have the privilege of a quick, cataclysmic destruction. They will have a slow and tormenting unraveling. I don't say that with any sort of giddiness. A slow and tormenting death that will only lead to an everlasting death. Christ has been vindicated. Where does your allegiance lie? So worship and trust the servant, brethren, because Yahweh has vindicated him as righteous. The merits of Christ are strong enough to propel you straight to heaven. He did it all, so all to him you owe. Worship and obey because Christ learned obedience. Worship and obey because Christ suffered affliction. Worship and obey because Christ was vindicated. And lastly, brethren, worship and obey because Christ calls you to. Let's look one last time at our text in verses 10 and 11. Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who gird yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand you will lie down in torment. Here is the final call to the child of light who fears God and yet finds himself seemingly without light in this world. Like the Savior, brethren, who experienced darkness and affliction and public shame, trust in the sovereign Lord who has ordained your days for Christ's likeness and vindication. These children of light in verse 10, they must be people who are saved because look how they're described. They fear God. Unbelievers don't fear God. They do not give him thanks. They do not give him praise. And in fact, some are so foolish even to conclude that there is no God. The fear of God is far from an unbeliever. And so the thrust and the shocking factor of this verse is that a child of God does go through God-ordained suffering. And you can draw strength in dark affliction of life by adoring the life of Jesus, the trailblazer of your salvation. But it begs the question, why would God ordain for you to suffer? Was not the suffering of his son enough? Why me? It's a good question. Let me help you think about this. Imagine a man working in the scorching heat of the sun every day. He's thirsty, sunburnt. He begs for a cloud to cover the intense heat of the sun. After complaining about the sun enough, he moves to another location where there is constantly an overcast. What do you think his life is like then? It rains year-round, and now every day he's wet, cold, and miserable. He lives in shadows and finds himself literally walking in darkness without light. You know what the only thing this man wants now? The only thing he wants to feel is the warmth of the sun again. He longs to feel its heat and see the vibrant colors of the sky, the grass and the trees that only the light of the sun can expose. The sun that he once despised and took for granted has now become sweet to him. He treasures it and no longer takes it for granted. And perhaps that's why God would bring you through a season of darkness so that you would reflect more intently upon God's Son and find sweetness in Him, so that Jesus would be the treasure of your heart rather than the world. 
Too much light and blessing from God would only be an excuse for your flesh to exercise pride anyways. You think about the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Paul talking about himself. Paul went to heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up in the paradise and heard inexpressible words, which man is not permitted to speak. And those are pretty lofty things to encounter. Paul saw the glory of heaven and his eyes laid upon things that words cannot even express. But he says in verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to keep me from exalting myself. What? You mean God sent a dark messenger of Satan to torment Paul who's seen inexpressible light? And for what reason? To keep him humble. In God's matchless wisdom, you see, he causes his people to walk as his servant walked and to find sweetness in Christ during the dark days. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The servant's call to the children of light is to find sweetness in him every day, whether good or filled with darkness. Praise God either way. But heed the warning. You who are children of darkness, who walk by the light of the firebrands, you set ablaze. Listen to the text. This is predictive future. There's no getting out of this. You will lie down in torment. The word firebrands means a flaming arrow or even a spark. In Proverbs 26, it indicates an insane person who throws fiery arrows at people. And then he concludes, I was only joking. The point is that slinging firebrands is the fool's favorite weapon that causes much destruction. This is the servant's call to his oppressors and the oppressors of his people throughout every age. They think their threats are something big. But in the servant's eyes, their assaults are nothing more than short-lived sparks. And their threats are nothing more than the crackling of thorns. There's a lot of flame, there's a lot of light, it's a lot of noise, and then it's gone. Reserved for the mist of this life alone. And so if they do not repent, they will slowly rot away in hell under the command of the servant himself. Analyze yourself. Are you walking by the light of your own good works that you have set ablaze? Some of you have been here for years, sinning under good and sound preaching, and perhaps still remain unconverted. What a terrifying thought. That someone here could die this afternoon and think yourself to be right with God. Think yourself to be on the right way. A way which seems right to you, but its end is the way of destruction. That someone could say, Lord, there you are, and be told, away from me. I never knew you. You think that because you've experienced some temporal blessing in this life, that it means you've gained God's approval for the next? Have you forgotten that the only approved life is Jesus, not yours? Does your life of ease somehow cause you to expect the glory of eternity? Don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself any longer. Today, come to Christ and be saved. Don't take the general kindness of God's blessing on your life as his approval for your wicked way. That's as foolish as a man convicted of murder and sentenced to death on the stocks. And so they take the criminal and they throw his head and his hands in the stocks awaiting for his head to be lobbed off of his shoulders. And as the executioner walks up to the man with the axe head of judgment in his hand, he lifts it up higher and higher. How foolish would the criminal be to roll his eyes upward to look at the executioner and conclude, you know, 
I must have gained the executioner's approval. After all, I'm still breathing. I could talk. I got my health. I think my wallet's still in my pocket. Plus, the axe head of judgment is going further away from my head. In fact, it's going in the opposite direction. Me and the executioner must be friends now. He seems nice. He's even wearing a nice leather mask. Yes, the judge must be for me. How foolish is that? Why is the axe head rising higher and higher? Is it not only so that the judgment would come down swifter and harder? Here's a thought. What if God's kindness to you, dear sinner, that you take for granted day after day is nothing more but the fattening up of your judgment? You see, Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given to fully do evil. Man takes the kindness of God as approval. If the kindness of God has been nothing more than a means for you to live by the motto, let us sin so that grace may abound, then perhaps the threatenings of hell should persuade you. He says, you will lie down in torment. And notice whose hand this is from. This is from the hand of the servant. That's right. Jesus is the one pouring out judgment on sinners for all eternity in hell. Revelation 14.10, speaking of the sinner's end, says, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of who? The Lamb. Hell is not the absence of the Lamb. It is the full presence of the Lamb. The sinner does not get it that easy. Thomas Watson said of hell, Eternity is the hell of hell. The loss of the soul is irreparable. If all the angels in heaven should come together to make a purse, they could not make up the loss. When a sinner is in hell, shall another Christ be found to die for him? Or will the same Christ be crucified again? Oh no, they're everlasting burnings. Don't believe the Hollywood nonsense that hell is some place where the demons are like screaming and whipping people and all this nonsense. No. God is executioner, prison guard, and prison warden of hell. But even you, dead in your sins right now you may be, a child of darkness pretending to be in the light, you could be saved this day. Because there is no sinner beyond God's grace. If you repent and believe that Jesus, the servant, lived and died and rose from the dead, then you too can be saved. Lay down the firebrands of your own deeds and follow the light of the servant of God who learned obedience in the place of sinners, suffered tremendously on their behalf. It was ultimately vindicated by God. In Luke 16, our Lord gave a parable about two men. One was a rich man who lived in splendor every day and despised the poor. He despised a man named Lazarus. And by the way, Lazarus means the one whom God helps. And the one helped by God was ultimately the one vindicated. His trust must have been in Yahweh and his servant because we see the angel carrying him away to heaven. Though he was a child of light who found himself walking in darkness to the point that the dogs would not even come to lick his sores, yet God was for him. Even still, Lord Yahweh helps me. But the rich man who despised Lazarus and rejected the Lord's word dies and opens his eyes in hell. The tables were turned. He said, Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. The firebrands that he slung at Lazarus day after day by passing him by without care are now burning him. And in verse 28, it says, He laid down 
in torment. Lazarus, the child of light who found himself in darkness, was vindicated. And the rich man, the child of darkness, who pretended to be in the light, lay down in torment. Our Christ, brethren, lived for sinners like us. He shouldered the life that we owe God. God demands perfection. That's it. You can't obtain it. You fall short. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, how hard you try, you will not obtain the perfection that God demands. You already start falling short. You're conceived in sin. You're born with it because of Adam's imputed guilt to you. You're already deserving of hell the day you were conceived. Christ, though, has been vindicated. Christ is the perfection that God demands. And didn't, he didn't stop. He set his face to Jerusalem where he would take upon himself the sins of his people on the cross where he would ba- bow his head and in the midst of affliction in the darkest moments that the world has ever seen, he would pray evangelistically saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You have an opportunity for peace with God right now. But you're not guaranteed it later. No matter where you are at spiritually, high on the mountain, bathing in God's light, fearing God and trapped in a dark valley, or outside of Christ slinging firebrands towards everyone in your life, this text calls you to come and adore Jesus, who suffered for sinners like us. And so I pray that your love for Christ has increased and that your heart will melt within you as you stand in awe of your glorious Savior. Praise God for this indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, We thank you so much for Jesus, whom you sent to obey where we disobeyed, to perfectly fulfill that which we have fallen short, and to go to the cross to die and pay for the sins of your people, for sinners like us all. I pray, Father, for the one who is saved in here, that they would be sanctified by beholding the perfect work of their Savior. And I pray for those who are lost, deceived, thinking themselves to be made right with you, that you would afflict their conscience even right now, cause them to be born again, that they may be saved, and that perhaps we would see them on that glorious day around your throne room, when we all sing holy, holy, holy in heaven. I pray, Father, that you would save sinners because I know you desire to save sinners. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.